A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And well, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Daniel Singleton. Daniel is the executive director of Faith Action. It's a group which encourages faith groups to serve in their local communities. Faith Action also acts as the organiser of the all-party parliamentary group on faith and society. We'll discuss the needs of faith groups to serve their local communities when local authorities can't. But first, it's May, so let's talk about Christmas. On Saturday, as the country sat down to enjoy the spectacle of the King's coronation, I was reminded of another King who made his appearance in a very different way. In Luke 2, verse 7, we read that Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So Jesus' entry into his kingdom contrasts in pretty much every way to the installation of our earthly monarchs. Tucked away in an obscure part of the Roman Empire without television cameras, bunting or ceremony, he arrived virtually unnoticed. The only fanfare was provided as an exclusive event for a group of shepherds camped on the hills above Bethlehem. The great company of the heavenly host provided a tiny glimpse of the awesome glory of heaven that will be hidden from the world's eyes until Jesus comes again. The point is not that Jesus doesn't hold immense majesty, but that he chose to enter his world quietly and humbly as an ordinary man, rather than imposing his rule from a position of power, as earthly rulers have always done. And while we marvelled at the coronation regalia, including the glittering gold cross surmounting the jewelled St Edward's crown, we can remember that the cross that Jesus bore was made of wood and drenched in sweat and blood. We humans create our own glory but Jesus shone through his service to us all. The starkness of these juxtapositions shows us the truly topsy-turvy nature of the kingdom of God. Whilst human beings need to ramp up the pomp and ritual to create a sense of majesty and importance around our royalty, the king of the universe rocked up in a manger. I was struck by the fact that underneath the spectacle, the coronation service itself drew out this contrast as it firmly placed King Charles under God's headship. As the Prime Minister's reading at the coronation service from Colossian 1, oh, say it again. As the Prime Minister's reading at the coronation service from Colossians 1 reminded us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. We hold human power and authority only with his permission, and yet he came to wait upon those he created. The coronation liturgy laid out the model that Jesus set for earthly monarchs. King Charles's first words on being greeted into Westminster Abbey were, In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. So, as we watch this deeply Christian service held in tension alongside the drama of the pageant, I was challenged again to consider what it truly looks like to be great. What does it look like to be a leader following and seeking to follow 
Christ's example. In almost every aspect, it is the opposite of what we expect worldly power to look like. As an aside, I count myself as a supporter of our constitutional monarchy, but a believer in a free democracy. So I'm really concerned by the arrests of some Republicans who protested at the coronation. They carried placards that read, not my king. I disagree with them, but support their right to express their dissent. But not my king is basically what human beings say to and about Jesus, either directly or otherwise. You see, we want to enjoy God's creation, but not God himself. He's not my king. I'm my king. I want to be free to be me. Yet the Bible's message is that by submitting to Jesus as our king, we gain ultimate freedom. By humbling ourselves before God through Jesus, we become elevated as his children. A Christian coronation recognises God's ultimate sovereignty and reminds us that leadership is a high calling because of the immense responsibility it brings to serve others. This is hugely humbling. So let's wish King Charles well and pray that he will be inspired to lead by example through service to the nation as his mother did before him. Let's pray for all those in government, leadership and positions of authority across the nation that, in the words of the coronation oath, they would cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all their judgment. And let's conclude by joining with the king's prayer that God would give grace that all in authority may find in thy service perfect freedom and in that freedom knowledge of thy truth, that we may be a blessing to all thy children of every faith and conviction that together we may discover the ways of gentleness and be led into the paths of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest this week, Daniel Singleton. Daniel is the National Executive Director of Faith Action. Daniel, that starts us off really maybe by telling us a little bit about how you come to be a Christian. Thanks, Tim, and great to join you today. Well, I'm, I'm one of those that grew up within faith. My dad's a, a minister. And uh, so it's hard always to pin down when, you know, when that moment was. But I think there were various key points, particularly in my childhood, where I, I kind of came to greater sense of commitment. But in, in some ways, I suppose I, I have a regular and daily choice whether to make Jesus Lord. And that, that's kind of what I come back to. In some ways, I, I feel closer to those who are moving towards becoming Christians on a more daily basis, because I think it's a much more apparent choice for me, which I don't always get right. <laughs> I'll notice that. But um, it's certainly where I want to be. Well, Daniel, you, you uh, grew up as a Christian. Uh, you entered teaching as a profession. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. I thought I was going to be in teaching for a long time. Um, but uh, things didn't work out that way. I was kind of ushered into other things. How long did you spend in the teaching profession? Uh, five years. Five years. Uh, I, I continue to be involved in education one way or another. But uh, no, I, I, I lined my whole life up, Tim, to uh, to be a teacher, to be a history teacher. And I was surprised and still aren't surprised that I was <laughs> I was not in it as long as I thought I would be. Uh, but I, I got a, a call from my church to to join them in a particular community project they were uh, be involved with and to kind of help um, professionalize their their services their training providing services mm -hmm. so that was that was an interesting thing and then one thing moved to the other and I came to be into faith action which was linked to that charity as well so tell us about how faith action came to be in UK yeah so so my my church um, always wanted to be a net producer didn't want to consume all that it produced 
and was always involved in some kind of service overseas. And then we started in the late 90s to realize there was real opportunity in East London to, to serve the community where we were. And uh, so we launched Lifeline Community Projects, which uh, is now in its 23rd year. And um, then, uh, then with a rapid growth, um, God's favor on that organization, and certainly there was a new possibility for voluntary sector organizations to deliver public services. We had a lot of knocks on the door from other churches, particularly some other faith, faith groups saying, how do you do it? How do you hang on to an ethos and take government money? So we realized there was a, some need for, for a faith action type organization to advocate for faith in the public square. So we formed that in 2006 and I moved over to Hidden Up in 2007. And within that work, we work with all manner of uh, government departments. We are linked to organizations throughout the country um, and uh, and we seek to kind of affect policy around the whole area of faith. Tell us a bit what Faith Action is now moved on or what it has now moved on to do. Yeah, so primarily our relationship has been with faith over the past, was over a decade, uh, sorry, faith, I say health, health and faith, mm. there you go. Over the past uh, decade, uh, we're part of the Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which is an alliance that the Department of Health and NHS uh, fund to speak into it. So we give the faith voice alongside, um, say, Race Equality Foundation around race um, or the Age UK or even uh, British Red Cross. So we kind of, alongside those organisations, helping to try and shape policy, thinking from a community perspective, how is it going to affect this community? How is it going to affect that community? Um, what can we do? So that's kind of one area. We also work with the communities department, particularly around integration. We see a great possibility for faith and community to be involved in integration. And we run uh, the Creative English programme. And then as, as different things come up, we get pulled into different areas. Um, and as you know, we're uh, the Secretariat to the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Faith and Society. I'll come back to that in a minute, because I think that's really important. But it may be interesting to our listeners that the Faith Action works very directly the Department of Health, coming up with and looking at uh, policies that affect the provision of health care. Uh, what, what does that look like when you're providing advice? What, what things do you suggest that the Department of Health should do, maybe counsel them not to do from a faith perspective? Yeah, it's what one term that sometimes is used within the civil service is avoiding elephant traps. And actually, sometimes we endeavour to help uh, the 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 health sector not walk into problems um, mm. uh, in terms of the way they go about things. So um, one of the areas we're particularly involved is, is around social prescribing. We think that's a mm. great opportunity for, for faith and community organisations, but we're just starting a particular project to, uh, around suicide prevention. And uh, we've been looking at how the structures um, and the new structures that are coming into the NHS how they can better partner with faith and community organisations. So, but what tends to happen is because that's a st standing partnership, a very powerful partnership, the Health and Wellbeing Alliance, it means that as particular issues hit, as new policies developed, they, they call the group together, we look at that, we try to say, well, this is going to affect this community in this way or that way. And it's particularly focused on health inequalities, which obviously is such an issue, mm. which in some ways was a kind of a health uh, geek issue before the pandemic. But the pandemic really made us all aware health inequality is something we all understand. And I think one of the scandals of the pandemic is, is we knew those who it would affect and who it would affect worse. And sure enough, it went on and affected those who are uh, most vulnerable in our society. Yeah. 
Now, Daniel, you mentioned a moment or two ago that Faith Action acts as the secretariat of the all-party parliamentary group on faith and society. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Well, to start with, we were having some con uh, connections with MPs and parliamentarians generally, and we felt there was a need to support them, particularly when they came from a faith perspective within uh, the House of Parliament. As, uh, as we kind of consulted and talked to uh, the Right Honourable Stephen Timms um, about this, he said, well, let's, let's have an APPG, particularly looking at how faith serves society generally. So we kind of gave a nod to the big society concept mm -hmm. in our name. Um, and the main outworking of that has been that we have uh, formed a faith covenant, which is an agreement that local authorities sign with their local faith groups about how they can work together. Very practical. So it's not really a dialogue thing, although dialogue's part of it. It's about making sure that faith is mobilized and connect to serve the community. And we've had 25 local authorities sign up to that, the first being Birmingham, which is the largest local authority in Europe. So that's been very significant. And uh, more recently, Coventry signed up for it. So, and I think we may even coming up your way, Tim, with the new structures in local government. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Daniel Singleton, National Executive Director of Faith Action. Daniel, last week on the show, we spoke to Colin Bloom about his report released very recently, looking into how government engages with faith. This is something that you've been exploring for quite a, a while. What, what did you make of the report's findings? The report had, had some superb parts to it. And I mean, what, what a job uh, Colin's been involved with. He started that programme before uh, lockdown and went through and had a key role throughout that. He's done a great job, particularly focused on faith literacy. But you see, there's so much that faith does. One report couldn't possibly uh, handle it all. In fact, if you take the Danny Kruger report and even the Keeping the Faith report that Chris Baker wrote for at the APPG, if you take those three together, you start to get a better picture, I think. And I think partly faith is not just a crisis. I mean, we kind of see that or it could be put in the problem box and that kind of thing. And I know that's what that report uh, endeavours to address. Mm. But if we're really to deal with the knotty issues in society today, I would say levelling up, uh, health inequality, social mobility, all those kind of things that just don't go away, then I think we need to involve not only civil society, but faith in that way. And I think that's one thing I'd like to see more of, not just that uh, government should work with faith, we agreed that, I think that's 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 signed and sealed, it's how, and not just for crisis, not just at the point of, of need, not just as a kind of a relief agency, but more how can we embed with local authorities and national government, how can we embed those relationships to make a difference? And so much of civil society is faith-based. Do you think maybe yes. that uh, the powers that be in national and local government have perhaps woken up to that a little bit in the last few years? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I think that, that the pandemic did was it made us very aware of some of those things that to some extent go on under the surface. So we obviously hear about food banks and things like street pastors, but even the fact that most uh, parent and toddler groups take place at church halls is an infrastructure, which is really important. But I think there's a relational infrastructure which um, can be really utilized, even for maybe business startup or those kind of things. We often complain about the, what is termed the old boys network, you know, those connections between those in, in, in government. But actually faith provides a network, a kind of bridging or bonding capital, I forget which is which, but it does both, um, for people to 
connect and you know so many people i know find jobs and find connections and uh, relationships through those people that they know through faith as well as through family connections and and the pandemic as you suggested put us in a situation where many faith groups who provide various services uh, began to be relied upon by public bodies who were perhaps a bit sniffy about faith beforehand do you do you get the sense post pandemic if that's where we are now that public bodies health service local authorities um have got over that sniffiness and maybe seeing uh, faith partners as a as, a, as long term partners I think it's a bit patchy, uh, Tim. I think that's that's part of the issue. So, so there were two reports that came out that which the APBG sponsored: the Keeping the Faith and Keeping the Faith 2.0. Keeping the Faith effectively said exactly what you said that there there was not the concern that there'd been a very lively um, interaction during the crisis period with faith. Keeping the Faith 2 started to say there's almost a retraction back to business as usual, even though actually we all know the world has changed. And I think partly um, there, there can be a bit of a laziness, realising that we have to do things differently. We can't carry on the way we are. And I think that's part of the thing of embedding those changes, which that that report does. And it, it claims a number of things which are very similar to some of the things that Colin uh, um, calls for to make a real uh, difference. But I think there is a, there's a need to sit down and have kind of really gritty conversations i don't think we need headlines i don't think we need gimmicks we need really gritty things so i think it's that kind of interaction how does a social prescribing um network make sure they include faith how do you how do you kind of come alongside and, and provide faith-based mentoring and all those kind of things those are the things that i think can make a difference and it's not headline grabbing it's really it's really gritty stuff that needs to go on so Colin Bloom's report talked about how national government and national government bodies can engage with faith communities. Uh, for you, serving in communities, what's your advice to faith groups about how they can, at the other side of the equation, if you like, engage with local councils, local health trusts and so on, so that they can make a difference more effectively? Yeah, much of the time I spend... Uh, talking towards government, talking towards local government and and saying faith is the answer. And, and sometimes I need to turn around and say to faith, go on, be the answer. And I think part of the thing is recognising, firstly, we need to recognise what we have. Um, that network that we have, those relations we have is very important. The community we have, the extended family nature of faith we have. We have that phrase, don't we, in English, that God gave us our family. Uh, thank God we can choose our friends. But if we go to that point, that that whole family connection and within faith, and certainly within Christianity, there is a there is a connection we have to people that are not blood relatives, but yet we're called to give our lives for each other. And so I think that's very powerful. You see, I think, Tim, the world is crying out for community, but doesn't want to pay the price of community. And I think partly exporting that, making that available. I did some research, particularly around uh, shared life within the church, the growth of that, and whether that connected and made a, made a positive difference to integration or not. People thought maybe it would close faith groups off, but actually what I found is that it made them much more open and connection. So I think relationship is very key. And I think actually recognizing that is the basis, very different basis to civil service or to, to the public sector, but that's the basis. And we can export that and make those communities available. And then there's obviously different things we can do in terms of actually the values of faith and roll that out in that sense as well. 
you said something really fascinating there about how the world craves community. We all crave community, but don't want to pay the price for that. What do we mean by that? Is it that people aren't prepared to roll their sleeves up and do their bit, or they want those community groups to be there so they can latch onto them, access them when they need them, but they don't want to be full-time members? I think all of us, I mean, I, I love getting presents, but I'm not always great at going out and buying them for other people. So I think there is that thing that we want to get the thing we can get. Uh, but there is, I've read recently this great quote, quote, the central fugal force of individualism within society. But that self thing, that desire for me to do what I want, um, you know, the, the, the iPhone, the iPad, all those eyes mm. there, it's all about me and my own uh, choices. But of course, mm. Uh, and even the operation of rights. My rights will in the end trample on your rights. There has to be a point of compromise and those kind of things. So I think part of the issue is that we're, we're faced, particularly from a Christian perspective, with a society that's stacked against us from a, from a moral perspective, that it, it effectively is pushing a very hard individualism thing. And actually, individualism is is the enemy of community and a family and those kind of things. So I, I long for the days where we sit around and argue over the TV control again, rather than just watching our own devices within mm -hmm. within the household. You know, that whole need to compromise and come together and to prefer others. There's a term we don't uh, hear used much. So I think that's part of the problem that you can't just bolt on faith to a, to a Western lifestyle now. It actually has to go right root and core right the way through and choices have to be made. And I think that's one of the issues, that's one of the crunching points that in the end, I believe you have to make some decision towards Jesus to make a difference in those things. Otherwise you're just living for yourself. And I think that's part of the problem, but we have to be a witness to a different way of being. Daniel, such a lot of wisdom in there. I'm really, really grateful to you for giving your time today in our conversation, but more generally with Faith Action and the great work that you do connecting uh, all faiths with with the public sector locally and, and and nationally daniel it's been a blessing having you with us thank you tim each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics it may be how an aspect of this world impacts us christians who work within it or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of well i'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk and there is a very strong chance that I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, Jenny in Southampton has been in touch and says, there's been a lot of criticism of this government not being in touch. My question is, what do you mean about politicians being in touch and what do politicians have to do to be in touch? Well, it's a great question, Jenny, and I do hear it quite a lot. I think it can mean more than one thing. It might mean maybe two things. First of all, when people criticise politicians for being out of touch, I think they often mean that they come from backgrounds or have experiences that are very different to most people's. And that often relates to their wealth. You know, are these privileged people um, in positions of power who just don't understand what it's like? Um, to not have money, not understand what it's like to not be able to afford to go to the petrol station or to be able to pay the rent or to be, be able to do some any basic things that keeps uh, food on the table for them and their families. And then there's also, I guess, the practical way of living. Are you the kind of politician who actually goes out of their way to find out what people think? Do you go and knock on doors? Do you go to marketplaces? Do you go to the places where the people are expecting them or rather than expecting them to come to you? In, in the end, I think leadership has to uh, involve an amount of 
empathy, even if you are not like the uh, the people you serve, maybe you come from a very privileged background, you can't help that, but you can help the extent to which you're prepared to be sacrificial in how you spend your time and where you spend your time. And if you are from, you know, Eton and Oxbridge and had all the privileges life could throw at you, but you nevertheless uh, immerse yourself in the communities you represent, then it's possible that you could be in touch, at least be sufficiently humble to be able to serve. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's close our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we lift up to you King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Uh, we thank you that the coronation went off uh, without a hitch uh, over the weekend. Um, and we thank you for your anointing of our King. You remind us that we are to pray for those who are put in positions of authority over us and that you place them there. But we pray that you would give wisdom to King Charles and Queen Camilla. We pray that uh, King Charles would uh, follow in the footsteps of his mother in trusting you, Lord Jesus, and realising that uh, though he may be king of his realm, uh, he is uh, under the rule of the one who is the only king of princes. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for your uh, power and we thank you for your ordaining of those in authority. We pray for, for wisdom and we pray for your blessing upon the reign of King Charles. But we just also lift up to you all those who put themselves forward for election in the council and mayoral elections that took place uh, last Thursday. Uh, we thank you for those uh, who were brave enough to put themselves in, uh, the, in, in, in the limelight and in harm's way, so to speak, uh, bold enough to seek to serve their community. We ask you would give wisdom and humility to those who were successful. And we pray for those who were not successful. Maybe they stood and didn't win, or maybe there were people who held positions and then lost uh, those positions as a result of the elections last Thursday. Would you please give them uh, your blessing and comfort, uh, give them wisdom and guidance as to what they should do next in their lives? And we pray you would raise up Christians, people who follow you and uh, call themselves uh, believers in, in your name uh, so that they might seek to enter local government. There'll be more Christians involved in councils up and down our country. And we just pray for uh, people who may be uh, listening to this, this programme to consider for themselves whether uh, time in local government might be a thing that they may be, being, may be being called to do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. Thanks for being with us.